say to us through it. And so I ask that as we read your word, uh, that your spirit would work, that your spirit would move today, that it would be mighty and powerful in all of our lives, and that we would have an expectation of your spirit moving and working as we hear your word read and preached. We thank you for the opportunity of gathering here together as well. Uh, It's a privilege that not all believers in the world are able to partake of. And so I also ask that you would remind us now that it is a a gift, it is a blessing to be able to do this, that we might uh, encourage and build one another up through the singing of your word and through hearing your word preached. And so we thank you for it. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So words have meanings and they have great ways to hurt and words have great ways to build up. And so when I think about God's word, I think about it being valuable and it being precious. And also I thought about if I could have even just 10 minutes with anyone in this world, dead, who would it be? And these are some names, not all these came to mind, but according to Time Magazine in 2013, uh, at least a few of these came to mind for me. This is their top 10 most influential people in history in order from one to 10. The first being Jesus, then Napoleon, Muhammad, William Shakespeare, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Adolf Hitler, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, and Thomas Jefferson. And I expected most of those, but then I also did a search just on the internet and and asked if I could have dinner with any dead person in the world, who, who would it be? And none of those came up, actually, in in the list that I saw. Here are some of the responses. Number one, my mom. So I could tell her how sorry I am for not picking up the phone the night she passed away. Response number two, my father. He passed away in 1968 when I was a young child. I have missed him in my life. I think I would hug him and never let him go. And then, of course, you've always got the person when you got to get a survey out. There's somebody who doesn't really stick to the question. And this was what one person, and they give three or four. They say my father, my mother, Pope John Paul, the Mother Teresa of Calcutta, and they named a few others as well. They couldn't make up their mind. And then the last one was myself in 30 years. I thought, hey, I, I, I didn't think about that, but that'd be pretty cool. Myself in 30 years, so I can ask what mistakes I made so I can avoid them. The people I should hold on to. The people I should let go of. The bad habits I shouldn't start. The good ones I once, or the good ones I should. And where I would most be happy and productive. And also when I thought about this, I thought about my grandfather personally. He was a man of, of few words. He wasn't shy, but he just did not speak a lot, possibly because my grandmother spoke so much. But when he spoke, people listened. His words had power. His words had meaning. They meant a lot to me. And I think we see something from Paul speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy where Paul knows his time is coming to an end. And so he's giving young Timothy, his son in the faith, These last words, these lasting words where he's wanting to remind him. He's wanting to remind him of what's most important. And so let's look to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That first part, but as for you... So he's directly contrasting someone else or some other people to Timothy. We see in 1 Timothy, the the book, 1 Timothy, as well as earlier in 2 Timothy, where he is directly contrasting, Paul is contrasting Timothy with these false teachers, these evil people, imposters. And actually back up with me two more verses to verse 12. And it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 
while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy... So he says, don't be like these people. Don't be like these evil people, these imposters. They're people who were first deceived, but then they were also deceiving others. They were deceiving others not to trust in God, not to take his word, not to hear the things of God. And so Paul is telling Timothy, don't be like them. And then that next word, continue. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you've learned it. This continue shows that, that Timothy is the exact opposite of what these evil imposters are. They're deceived and deceiving others and continuing to go from bad to worse. But Timothy is the exact opposite. Timothy is one who is already in the faith. He's in Christ. And he's saying, Timothy, remember, this is coming from one who, someone who knows this, he's nearing the end of his days when we typically reflect upon things that are most important to us, right? And Paul is telling Timothy, continue in your faith, stay in your faith, remain in your faith. And actually this Greek word here is in the present imperative. So he's saying, you are currently believing, Timothy, but also stay in your belief, continue in it, remain in it. And it's it is in direct opposition to these evil imposters. And in 1 Timothy, Paul names them by name. He says Alexander and Hymenaeus. But then in 2 Timothy, he names Philetus, and he names Hymenaeus again, saying, don't be like these people, reminding, them, reminding him specifically of these people. Do not be one who deserts your faith. Continue in your faith. Continue loving the things of God, cherishing him above all things in your life. Because he's telling Timothy, it's not just right now that this is your life, but it is your life. It will sustain you through life. It's not just your life today, but it's your life tomorrow and 10 years from now. And oh yeah, by the way, when you die, this is your life. Christ is your life. Remain in him. He gives you life. Cling to him. So continue in what? What is he to cling to? Continue and what you've learned and firmly believed. Timothy has learned and firmly believed in these scriptures, the sacred writings that we'll get to in just a second. And we know from Acts that Timothy was most likely actually came to know Christ through possibly Paul's first missionary um, experience when he was traveling. And so also, he also became Paul's fellow missionary and his co-laborer, his traveling companion, and so not only does Paul know Timothy because he's writing to him, an elder in Ephesus, but he's also saying, I know you, Timothy. I've seen your life. Continue in what you already have. Continue on. And a lot of times we do this same thing with kids, right? If you've had kids graduate high school, you send them off to college, maybe your parting words as you're you're, you're giving kisses, you're crying in the dorm room right before you give the big hug. You say to your son or your daughter, continue in your faith. Remember what you've been, what you've, you've been taught. Remember what you've learned. And you, you might even think of the, the neighbor two years prior who went off to college and you hear from their parents Johnny or Timmy has gone off and he's deserted his faith. He's, he's run from God. And, and sometimes we made, might even reference that to our own children saying, don't be like them. Not because we don't actually want them to be like that person, but we don't want them to be the person that runs away from their faith, that deserts their faith. And so Paul's saying, don't be like these evil imposters. Be one who remains, who continues in your faith. Don't desert what you've been taught. And it's not just what you've been taught that he references, but he also references in verses 14 and 15, he tells Timothy to trust in the testimony of those who have taught you these things. It says, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood You've been acquainted with the sacred writings. 
So not only don't forget what you're already doing, remain in what you believe, but also remember the testimony, the character of the ones who taught you these things. That's powerful. That's powerful for your pastors, your elders. Our life has to match up with what we preach, but it's also powerful for parents. Your lives, may your lives match up with what you teach your children. May the quality of your witness, Timothy, or your parent, your your mother and your grandmother's witness, Timothy, remember it. May that also be a testimony to what you've been taught. We know from Acts, uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 1, that Timothy's father was a Greek non-believer, but his mother was a Jewish believer. And so also we hear in verse, uh, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, I, he's speaking to Timothy again, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. So again, he's referencing Timothy's faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. And the same thing's true today, right? When a prosecutor or a defense attorney is in court, they want to find the most reliable witnesses. They don't want to just go find somebody that had secondhand knowledge of this. Well, I talked to this guy who who talked to this guy who saw what happened. No. The defense attorney wants someone who's seen eyewitness. But then he doesn't just want that. He also seeks out the most credible witness, the most credible character to give testimony to what's being said in the courtroom, right? In a similar way, Paul is telling Timothy, remember what you've been taught, but also remember the character of those people who taught you. Your grandmother. Your mother. That's a strong word for moms, for grandmothers. 20 years from now, when your grandkids go off to college, will their friend that's going with them through the trenches in college, will they be able to say, remember your grandmother? Remember your mother? Remember what they've taught you? The scriptures, the word, God? Remember this. And single moms, don't beat yourselves up because the days are so hard and the work of raising kids is relentless. The greatest thing you can give your kids is God. Let your kids see Him changing you. Let your kids see Him changing you from the inside out, transforming everything that you do Give them God above all things. Grandfathers. It doesn't say specifically Timothy's grandfather here, but I think the same thing applies to you and fathers, the same thing to us. We have a task before us, a responsibility before us, not to give our kids money, not to give them a great education. Yes, those things are good. A house over their head to set them well up for life when they leave your home. But the greatest thing that you can give and I can give my kids sitting right over here is to give them God every day as they see him transforming me, transforming you. Give them the greatest treasure they could ever have. The Gospels tell us about a man who goes and finds a treasure in a field and out of his joy he goes and sells everything that he has, right? Not begrudgingly. He goes and sells everything out of his joy because he knows what's in that field, the great treasure, is far greater than anything he could ever have. And so it would be foolish of me as a father to give my kids something that's going to perish, that's going to die when I can give them the eternal truths of God, that they might trust in Him all of their life. So give them God. But Paul doesn't also just reference his, Timothy's mother and his grandmother. But throughout the letter of 2 Timothy, Paul, I think, also is referring to himself here. 
Because in 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul says, Follow the pattern of sound words that you have learned from me. And the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Because remember, Paul and Timothy were together. Co-laborers together. And then 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And what you have heard from me, that is Paul, in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. And then again in 3.10 and 11, Paul says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me. So Paul not only says, Hey, Timothy, follow your grandmother, follow your mother. He also says, Follow me. Sounds eerily familiar of the call of Christ to come, follow me. Take up your cross and deny yourself. Whatever it costs you, it will be far greater in return than what you give up. And I think this especially applies to us today. Men, older men, are you giving of yourselves to a Timothy in this church? Yes, pouring your life out to your family is great, and we see great examples of Lois and Eunice doing that here. But also, there are some Pauls in here that if you're not already, you need to be pouring your life into some Timothys. We need it. And Timothys, you are also, just like Paul is telling him here, you have to be a faithful witness. Your life too matters. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to be an example, right? Don't regard your young age. Don't dismiss your young age, but be an example for those who are older than you. But also be an example for those who are younger than you. Sunday school teachers, you have a huge responsibility. Week in and week out, you are teaching the scriptures to our kids. They see you each Sunday. They look up to you more than you realize. I think if you were raised in the church and you even think back to times that you were taught in Sunday school, you remember those people, right? You remember the things that they've taught you. Sunday school teachers, please don't discount the ministry that you do in kids' lives. It's important. The greatest thing that you can give them in those classrooms back there is not fun, although you can have fun. But the greatest thing that you can give them week in and week out is a faithful witness to the Word that is pointing them to salvation, that is pointing them to who Christ is. And students especially, and even young men, I want to ask you to not be foolish. Your parents, who teach you the word. Men in this church who may speak to you of the things of the word. Don't discount their words. Don't discount their encouragements. Don't play off, oh, that's just my mom. Oh, that's just my dad. Receive their word. Don't be foolish. Receive their instruction. Take their word. Hear it. Believe the word for living. It's not just something that is to, to be heard. It's something that we are to believe for living. And Timothy hears it. Paul tells him, believe this. Believe the word that you may have life. Believe the word that you may have salvation. So believe the word for your salvation, Timothy. Trust in the written word for salvation. Let's look to verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So, I've already told you, Paul tells Timothy, remain in the word, remain in the scriptures that you've been taught. He specifically says sacred writings that you've been taught. And here again, he's telling him, trust in this written word, these scriptures for salvation. There's nothing else that 
can bring you salvation and not because the word itself is salvation. You can't know enough of the word. You can't memorize Genesis through Revelation and therefore you have salvation, right? The word is not salvation itself. Knowing the word is not knowing salvation, but it points us to the one who gives salvation, the one who gives life. These scriptures tell of the Messiah, of the one who is to come. That is Jesus, who's the fulfillment of the word. And so there's three responses that we have to this written word. We can either totally deny it, which I would say for the most part, if you're here today, is probably not you. But probably the second one is the most common and possibly the most dangerous. You say, I believe the word but you don't read the word. You don't seek to know the word. You don't seek to know the God who has given you the word. And I think that's far more dangerous because we deceive ourselves. Yes, I have a high view of scripture. I love the word. But if you truly believe it, if you truly love it, if you truly cherish it, if you truly think that it's what points you to salvation, then trust it. Believe it. Make it something that you read. And so the third response is believe the word, believe it, but also read it. And not just read it as, okay, I read, that was 10 minutes, great, things are done. Or you've got the app that maybe sends you the verse for the day, great, I read the word, that's it, check, it's done. That's not reading and believing. Reading and believing is that I come to the Word. Sometimes it doesn't always make perfect sense. I understand that. I'm not saying that every, every time we read and open the Word that we perfectly understand everything. Maybe it requires you to actually dig into the Word or ask somebody else about it. But believe it. Read it. May that, that it may change your life. That it may change my life. And the reason that we can read and believe it is because it was given to us by a great God. These scriptures, God is revealing himself to us through his word. And so love it, cherish it, it's how you know him. John 5, verse 39, or chapter 5, verses 39 through 40 say this, and this is Christ speaking. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so the scriptures, don't deceive yourself that just reading the word or possibly even just coming to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday night brings eternal life. But come to the word that we may read it, that it would point us to the one who gives life, the one who gives salvation. Trust these sacred writings because they're given to us by God and they're able to make us wise. And it's not just this wisdom from learning in life and because I've got a few extra gray hairs now that I turned 32 a few or a week ago, now I've got some, some extra wisdom, right? That's not the wisdom it's talking about. It's talking about this wisdom that comes only from knowing God, the wisdom that you see in the Proverbs. This this wisdom of walking in the ways of God and not walking in the ways of wickedness. Know him, trust him. And in fact, you've probably seen this, right? You've probably seen some 40-year-old men. I know I've seen this in my life. There's specifically one man that I knew in his 40s that was far more wise than some men in their 60s and 70s. And it's not because he was great. It's not because he had had a super hard life that he's learned so much from, but it's because he knew the word. He cherished the word. He loved it. He came back to it over and over again. And the same thing we see for a map. The purpose of a map is not that you cherish a map or you don't go to an architect to, to draft up blueprints for your house and you cherish these blueprints. Man, these blueprints are awesome. These are so good, right? They may be good blueprints, but that's not the end. 
You're not paying him just to draft up plans for the blueprints, but you're looking forward to, you're looking to what the blueprints are going to do, what the blueprints are for, and they're for the house. You don't cherish the blueprints, you might cherish the house. We don't worship the Bible. The Bible is inerrant. There is no error in it. And so, yes, we should, in some regards, cherish the word. We should love the word. But even more than that, love the one who has given it to us, the one who it points us to, and that is Christ in all things. We see him throughout the Bible. And so God intends to reveal himself to us in the Bible that we might worship him that our reading and our understanding doesn't just terminate in, yes, I understand it, I have a head knowledge, but that it results in worship, that we worship God because of his word. And it says in 3.15, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So not only should we, should we trust the, the written word, but we should trust the incarnate word, that is Christ with us. You can trust the written word for salvation because of who it points us to, that is God made flesh. But it's not just, as we hopefully know, it's not just a collection, a gathering of these moral principles, right? If that were all it were, then we could watch Andy Griffith, you could watch Little House on the Prairie and get some really good moral teachings, Love others, love your sister, listen to your mom and dad. But that's not where the scriptures end. They give us some of those things. They do show us the way of righteousness. They do show us the way of the fool. But ultimately, they're pointing us to salvation in Christ, that we would look to him and respond to him. Uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the word made flesh, which means, among other things, that truth, righteousness, power, veracity, wisdom, omniscience will be found in the person of Christ. So just like the house is far more valuable than the blueprints, Christ is far more valuable than the word. The word is given to us that we might know him, that we might have salvation through him. It points us to the supreme being. So we worship not the Bible, we worship the king of kings. We worship the one who is not just a written word, he is the incarnate word, God with us, Emmanuel. And I've said already that the scriptures, they point us to God, right? You can see this in a number of ways, but probably the one that's most familiar, if you look at the whole of scripture, if we were to sum it up, In just four words, it would be God, man, Christ, and response. We see who God is, right? Especially in the beginning. It tells us in the beginning was God. He wasn't created. He's this perfect being. He is this omniscient being, this all-powerful being, so powerful that in fact, he creates all things out of nothing. And out of his good pleasure, he creates man, Because he loved us, he wanted to love us, and we rebelled against him. We said, God, I know you've given me this perfect place to live in. You've actually given me a perfect relationship with you, but I'm still going to rebel against you. And yes, I am referring to Adam and Eve, but we do the same thing every day. We rebel against him, and because of that, we have deserved death. We deserve a punishment of separation from him forever. That is hell. Romans tells us that it's the wages of sin is death. We've earned it. It's not because God's hated you. He created you to destine you to hell. He created you out of his good pleasure, but we rebelled against him. We've separated ourselves from him, this holy, perfect God, but he didn't leave us there. He gave us Christ. He gave us himself, the incarnate word that you and I might believe in him. So receive him today. The response, reject him or receive him. Receive him as the one who has come to save you. Trust in him, the incarnate word, for salvation.
believe the word because it points us to Christ and salvation. And then 2 Timothy, look with me, 2 Timothy 3.16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so believe, Paul keeps telling him, believe, believe, believe the word for righteousness. Trust God's word for training in righteousness, right? The scripture that's all, that's breathed out by God is given to us by him. And I think even here, Paul has in reference his own writings, the apostles' writings. And if you look to 1 Corinthians chapter 2.13, Paul says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So Paul believed even his own writings and the writings of the apostles were the words of God. And it doesn't mean that these apostles, these writers, even the Old Testament writers went into this catatonic state where God's moving their hand and they have no control, but instead God's working in them, moving in them through his Holy Spirit, using their personalities, using their experiences to teach, to write these scriptures. And so I think even Paul's referring to not just the Old Testament, these sacred writings, but even the writings of the Old Testament. And we see 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's because it's from God, it can work, it can move, it can train you, it can train me for righteousness. And when we talk about being righteous, there may be a couple of senses of righteousness that we talk about, right? Sometimes we talk about being right or righteous, being, being made right before God, and that's only a work of Christ. But I don't think that's the reference to, to righteousness here. I think it's more of a righteousness actualized or an uprightness of life. It's a work of God in you producing right living or right conduct. And so it has in view this, this idea that your life that you live, may that be righteous. Not your being, or not that you listen to the word that you believe it, and because you believe it, or because uh, you've you've memorized it, that you're now made righteous. That would be against everything that Scripture teaches, because we know that salvation. Paul's already said that your salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. So this righteousness is much more of this living, this, this life that's been transformed, this life that's been made new, that you might be sometimes talked about in the Old Testament, that you would be blameless before men. And we see here that this scripture, because it's from God, is good for teaching. It's good for reproof. It's good for correction. It's also good for training in righteousness. And I think that that teaching there is, is more of a general term. And it's giving maybe a broad term for the next two things that come about. And that is for correction, or sorry, for rebuke, right? If we're going in a wrong way, we don't want to just be rebuked, although we do, especially as parents, we rebuke our kids, Right? But we don't want to just leave them in rebuke or reproof or correction. We want to give them correction. We don't want to just, to just cast judgment and, and, and harshness on our kids. We, we tell them, no, this is not the way, right way. But then we, we redirect them. We correct them. God's word is good for reproof and rebuke. But it also corrects. It teaches us. It rebukes us. It corrects us. And what does it do in that? It trains us for righteousness. It trains us. It teaches us the right way that we can live blameless before men, that when people see us living blameless, that they might glorify our Father. And so may it train us for godliness. And we see the same thing with training in 1 Timothy 4, 7 uh, through 8. It says, rather, this is again Paul speaking to Timothy, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, 
as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So it's not just this training. It's not just that you might be one who is righteous before men, but it's that we might point others to, to Christ, to point them to him, but also this training in righteousness. It trains us in godliness. And we see the same thing with businessmen and, and especially those who are higher up, CEOs maybe, where they may be some of the most disciplined people that you might possibly know. And they don't do that just to say, look at me, pat myself on the back, I'm doing really awesome, I'm leading this company. But they discipline themselves that they might see results, right? That they might be focused on where they're going, where the company's going, where they're trying to lead the company and the rest of the employees, that they might achieve this end goal. And so God gives us his word that he might teach us, that he might reprove us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness. This training has this idea of disciplining ourselves. Like a a, a CEO who's very disciplined, why would we not also discipline ourselves for godliness? It tells us in 1 Timothy 4, discipline yourselves for godliness. Not so that men may see your good works and praise you, But discipline yourself for godliness because it benefits this life as well as the life to come. Other people see that godliness working in you as not just for yourself. It points others to him. And the same thing for Pastor Stephen. He puts in great discipline every week. It's great discipline for him to get up here every single week and bring the word to you. It requires great discipline determination, great discipline, great habits, that he might accurately divide the word, that he might accurately give us the word each week. And so it's not with laziness that Paul's telling Timothy to go about his life, but discipline yourself, train yourself in righteousness. We see something similar with Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates, not just once, not just last year I learned that verse at Christmas time. He meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. May it be something that is taking root in our lives, that is bearing fruit in our lives because we meditate on it, not just in the morning when we read our 10 minutes of devotion, but may we meditate on it, think upon it, right? It's not yoga meditation. We're trying to get rid of all things in our minds, but it's actually meditation where we're filling our minds and not just to say that I memorized something and I've got it, but that it might train us in righteousness, right? That it might show us the way of God, that it might bring us to life in Christ, that it might give us weapons to fight this good fight of faith. And imagine what what it would be like if you and I, fathers, mothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, were these people, were this blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, what would it look like in the lives of our kids and our grandkids? How would we be different if we meditated on the word day and night? How would we be changed? How would we be transformed? But then not just us, if we're spending our days and our nights reminding ourselves of the truths of God, how is it gonna change those around us? How does it change my wife because I know the word? Because I've spent time in the word today, this morning, when I get home from work, how does that change my perspective when I get home from work? I'm not coming home from work just to to kick back in the lazy boy and throw my, my feet up in the air. I'm coming home from work knowing my work is not done. My paycheck may be done, but I'm coming home from work that I might do the greatest work that God has given me the responsibility of doing. And that's shepherding my families, our families. That I would love my wife when I'm tired, I would help out around the house. When my kids want to jump in daddy's lap, 
as soon as the door cracks, they don't even let you get through it, right? They come and tackle you. That I wouldn't be so concerned about being tired from the day of work that I now know my true work, my better work, is to pour Christ into the lives of my kids. How would we all be different if we were this blessed man meditating on the word day and night? And kids are smart, right? Most of us are fairly intuitive. We can look at someone and tell when they hear words coming out of our mouth and our lives don't match up with it, right? We're not training ourselves for this righteous life that we might be displaying this life changed by God. Kids know when there's marital dysfunction going on, even when you don't tell them. They can see it. They know it. Mom and dad aren't acting right. We see the same thing with our words that we tell our kids, love God. But then our lives look totally different. We pursue money. We pursue that promotion more than we pursue Christ. They see it. When they're young, they may, they may take your words more, receive your words more than they, they notice in your life. But the older we get, the more we see when there's a discord between the way that we live and the way that we speak. And so may we be transformed from the inside out by this word, by the one, the word that it points us to, that being Christ. So parents, we must love God more than anything. And then the opposite may be true of some of us. We may tend to hide our relationship, right? It's our personal relationship. Well, it's not just personal. It is personal, but it's not meant to solely be personal. It's meant to be shared. The things you know of God, what's he tell us to do? The last thing before Christ ascends he says, as you go, make disciples, right? It's not something that's intended to terminate on you. As you learn about Christ, as you know the word, give it to others. Give it to your kids. Give it to them in a life that displays righteousness, but also give it to them in your words. And trust God's word to equip us for good works. So read with me again. In 1 Timothy three sixteen through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And here it is, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We also know the scripture tells us that you were created in Christ for good works. You weren't created in Christ because you did good works, because you've done enough to earn salvation. You were created in Christ for good works, that you might love others, that you might serve others. And you're not just created as this new being, but you're also equipped to do this good work. By the work of the Holy Spirit, through his word, I think God works on us. He trains us in righteousness. And it's not usually, not ever, something that just happens in a day or a week or a month. It's years, right? Andy Davis, another pastor in uh, Durham, North Carolina, says this. He said, God desires to build a city of truth. In the heart of his children, this city of truth will also be erected brick by brick. That is line by line of scripture, precept by precept, truth by truth, over years of time spent in his word and in his world. So the longer we live, the longer hopefully we're growing in righteousness. And it's not because we just wake up and we have more experience in life, but it's because day after day after day, it turns into weeks and months and years and decades a lifetime of spending with Christ through his word, right? That's how we know him. It points us to him. It's his word teaching us. And to finish up the quote from Andy Davis, he says, theological truths in all their depth and breadth take years to be established and rise to complete form in the human heart. So that picture that he gave of brick by brick line by line of scripture. You're learning things today. And it doesn't mean that because you've read this, 
you've read the word for a year, you've now resurrected this big city of truth in your life. But what you learn today, you may come back to a year from now and read. And three years from then, and you're continuing to build, hopefully, Lord willing, through his Holy Spirit, brick by brick by brick, to build up this city of truth in your life that combats, that fights this fight of faith. Because you're building up scripture in your life that's coming together and it's giving you this full picture of who God is and his work in this world and how he's come to save his people. And to sum up this passage, Kent Hughes says of all, verses 14 through 17, he says, in retrospect, we can see that Paul was doing here, what Paul was doing here to encourage Timothy to endure. As Timothy recalled Lois, Eunice, and Paul, and how their lives matched the teaching of their lips, he would be strengthened to continue. As Timothy recalled his immersion from infancy and the sacred writings, that had made him wise and a recipient of salvation through faith in Christ, he would be further heartened to continue on. And then as Timothy reflected on the scriptures as the very breath of God and thus useful for everything and equipping him for ministry, he would continue to stand up for the gospel. That we would see God's word to us pointing us to Christ that we might have life in him. And even in fact, you say, well, Josh, this is good. This is New Testament stuff. Listen to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all of the words of his law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. So God's word, all of it, not just New Testament stuff, all of it from beginning to end is given to us that we might have life, that you might cling to the word because it points you to the one who is the author of salvation, that I might have life, that you might have life in him. So believe the word that you might have life. And I know this year is coming to an end, and so even as we look to 2015, a lot of times we have New Year's resolutions that most often, if you're like me, they get dropped maybe March, if you're doing really good, maybe July. But what if we sought this year to seek God through his word more faithfully than we ever have? And so even as we look to that, I want to encourage you with a, in a couple of ways. Individually, what might this look like? Read it. There's some Bible reading plans out on the Welcome Center. I think there's actually three out there. Pick one up. Sometimes people reading through the Bible in a, in a year is, is a good thing. Personally, for me, I think it's a bit much to, to really focus on and, and meditate on in one day. Three to four chapters can be a lot. But don't be so focused on the task of actually finishing in a year. Be focused on hearing the word, reading the word, cherishing it, loving it, that it might instruct your life, that it might train you in righteousness. So individually, may we read it, may we meditate on it. And James gives us something well to think of here. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So what he's saying there is, if you hear only and don't do, you're deceiving yourself. And then he continues on, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the, but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, you get that? It's perfect and it's not meant to squelch all fun in life. It's a law of liberty. It gives us life and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in doing. So if you're to be this one who doesn't just see himself in the mirror, one who doesn't just read the word and forget when you walk away 30 minutes later, 
You have to meditate. You have to, to, to bring it back to mind, to remind yourself of it, to think upon it throughout the day. This meditating on the law day and night doesn't mean that's all I ever do is read the scripture and tell my boss I still want my paycheck, right? That's not going to fly well. But think about it over and over. May it transform the way we live. So individually, may we read it, may we meditate on it, may we memorize it as we meditate on it. And then as I've already encouraged you, may we share it. May it not end with us. Moms, as you're at home with your kids, dads, when you're at home with your kids, may it be something that you speak. doesn't mean it always has to be a formal teaching where you sit down and gather the family on the couch. But as you go, read Deuteronomy chapter 6, as you go, whether you rise or you lay down or you walk along the way, may it be things that we're speaking of. May people see God working in us. And then I think even corporately, how can we as a faith family cherish the word more faithfully this coming year? There's two things I can think of. The first being Wednesday nights. Pastor Stephen's going to be teaching on the Old Testament, a book each week going through the Old Testament, teaching us. And that's also a time where we're coming together, where we can discuss the things of God, the scriptures together, learn from Pastor Stephen, but also one another. Because I guarantee you, there's things that you guys know that I need to learn. I need to learn from you. We need to learn from one another. And then also, we can learn through community groups. As we hear the word preached faithfully on a Sunday, then we move throughout the week. And we don't want to just forget it, right? Remember James? Don't just be one who sees himself in the mirror and forgets. Don't just be one who hears on a Sunday and forget. Community groups can be a great way for us to gather back around the word, discuss the word, seek to apply it in our lives. And you should notice in your bulletin, there is a little handout, a little insert for community groups. So look at that. Find a community group that you might be able to fit into. I would love to have you on Thursday nights at the Welsh's house. Um, But for all of us, may we individually and corporately believe the word, that we believe it for living, that we believe it for salvation, that we would also believe it for righteousness. Pray with me. God, we thank you for giving us of yourself that we might know you through the word, but also through the incarnate word, that is Jesus, who we have spent the last four weeks looking toward through your word. We thank you for his work on the cross, offering life to all of those who believe. And may we, after hearing your word, respond because you've transformed us. I pray that you would work in us through your word, through the hearing of it, and now even through the singing. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.